All right, we gave you just a little time to finish lunch and then come in, so I think it worked out okay. But we do have a lot to cover, so um, just by way of an introduction, though, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, diabetes, uh, lifestyle intervention. How many of you uh, watched the Republican debates this week? Anyone watch those? Parts of it. Parts of it? Well, if you watched the beginning part, or I don't know, maybe it was partly in the middle, they did mention diabetes. Did you notice that? Uh, I found it interesting that it was the, the non-physicians that actually brought up the fact that if we really want to address the healthcare crisis in this country, we need to address the health crisis that we're facing. We're going to be talking about that today. I think that there's something to that. Uh, but uh, I missed a little bit of an introduction here. So I haven't been here for a couple of years to amen, so some of you may not know me as well. So let me briefly... Uh, um, introduce who I am. I know Dr. Neblet may have, uh, have mentioned as well. I'm currently an endocrinologist working on the island of Guam. There's an SDA mission clinic there, and I practice there. I would say 70-80% of my practice is diabetes type 2. Uh, there's very little type 1 actually uh, in Guam uh, because that's a lot of it is in a Caucasian um, demographic. But uh, we also have a wellness center there. We have lifestyle classes and all the whole, the whole bit there. So it's a nice place to practice. And uh, uh, our family enjoys it. You may have seen uh, my wife and kids uh, running around here. They're, we're all privileged to be here from Guam. My wife, Sunny. And this is my older son, Enoch. He's now four years old. He was three years old at the time of this picture. And this is uh, Noah, our two-year-old. So... Uh, they're, uh, they're friendly guys. You can stop and s stop them if you see them in the hall and say hi. Uh, no disclosures. Before we go into learning objectives, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have of knowing so much about, about healthy living. And we pray that as we now go over uh, the evidence in the medical literature and as we apply it to uh, our situation as Adventists, may you give us uh, a... a special portion of your spirit to both understand and to uh, learn how we can be a part of spreading this important message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so today we're going to have uh, three main objectives. The first one is to uh, look at some of the recent medical literature that really has, has uh, proven that diabetes can be prevented and treated and that can be done through lifestyle intervention. And then the second part of it is going to be looking at how lifestyle intervention works or potentially how it could work and how it affects the progression of diabetes. And then the final part, we're going to touch briefly on some things perhaps that we can do to help people sustain their healthy lifestyle choices. And that is a, a big dilemma nowadays. So before we begin that, you probably are aware of the current diabetes epidemic. But just to review and to reinforce in our minds where we're at now, the most current statistics as of 2015 show that over 50% of the American public either has prediabetes or diabetes. That's 12 to 14% with diabetes and about 40% with prediabetes. So you walk out on the street, one out of two people has prediabetes or diabetes, and I include prediabetes because that's almost as important as diabetes, especially when we talk about lifestyle intervention. 115 million people in the United States with, either, uh, with uh, diabetes and 387 million currently worldwide. And just to underscore how quickly this is growing, realize that in 1985 there were only 30 million diagnosed cases of diabetes at that time. Since then, of course, we know we're in the 300s, 300 millions currently, and it's projected that it, by 2030, we'll have about 552 million people diagnosed with diabetes. The latest number that I've seen is a projection for, two, uh, for 2035, and they're estimating uh, almost 600 million people with diabetes. That's a tremendous uh, amount of, of morbidity and mortality, uh, as well as health care costs. However, uh, the, a lot of the medical societies now are, are recommending lifestyle intervention for prediabetes and diabetes. 
And in fact, just uh, three days ago, the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommended diabetes screening for certain groups of people. And you can see here, this, is, this just came out a few days ago, that it says that, the, that they recommend screening for abnormal blood glucose as part of a cardiovascular risk assessment in adults between 40 to 70 years who are overweight or obese. Uh, I, as an endocrinologist and as a, a diabetologist, I would say we probably aren't going far enough with this. You're missing a lot of potential diabetes cases by, by not going lower than 40, by not uh, paying attention to high-risk populations and uh, women with gestational diabetes and all these type of other, other um, categories. But it's a step in the right direction. But notice the second sentence here. It says, clinicians should offer or refer patients with abnormal blood glucose to intensive behavioral counseling interventions to promote a healthful diet and physical activity. So this is the most recent recommend recommendations out there. And uh, if you look at the other medical societies, you'll see a similar recommendation. So here's the American Diabetes Association, one of the preeminent medical societies for diabetes. And in their guidelines, this, this is what they say. Patients with impaired glucose tolerance, impaired fasting glucose, or an A1C between 5.7 and 6.4, all of those groups would be considered pre-diabetes, correct? Should be referred to an intensive diet and physical activity behavioral counseling program, targeting loss of 7% of body weight and increasing moderate intensity physical activity, brisk walking, uh, to at least 150 minutes per week. So that is the current guidelines from the American Diabetes Association. And then, of course, there's the uh, American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, which is uh, the society that I belong to. And they also have the recommendations for pre-diabetes and diabetes. This is the algorithm for pre-diabetes. And you can see here that lifestyle modification is the first-line treatment. And if you look at the algorithm for diabetes treatment, again, we all know this. Lifestyle modification is the first thing that we should recommend to our patients. So why is that? Why are these, rec these recommendations in place? There were three landmark clinical trials that were done uh, around the turn of the millennium that really proved eloquently and convincingly that lifestyle intervention is very important in the progression of diabetes. And we're going to go through each one of those now. The first one was done in 1997. It was called the Da Ching IGT and Diabetes Study. The second one was uh, published about four years later in 2001, and it was called the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study. And the last one that we're going to talk about was published just a year later in 2002 called the Diabetes Prevention Program. It's uh, maybe the most famous one, and it was done in the United States. So let's start with the Da Ching Study. This study, uh, looked at 100 and they screened 110,660 adults from 33 clinics in Daqing, China. This is back in 1986, probably before China was as westernized as it is now. But they were looking for individuals with IGT or impaired glucose tolerance or diabetes type 2. And of those 110,000 people, they were only able to find 577 people with prediabetes. That's pretty amazing, actually, isn't it? Uh, if you were to do that same screening process in the United States right now, okay, with the known rates of prediabetes, you'd probably find about 44,000 people with prediabetes. That just gives you a little, a little idea of where China was and maybe that, that demographic at that time in 1986. That was prior to the boom uh, in, in diabetes, at least on the early stages of it, especially in China. Anyway, they randomized these 577 people to either control or three different intervention arms. One was a diet-only arm, one was an exercise-only, and then one was combined together. And I'll show you what they did for each of those in a moment. They followed these uh, individuals at two-year intervals for six years, and uh, they were trying to identify those who developed diabetes. Here's what the different uh, interventions were. Of course, control was just general advice, brochures, uh, things of that nature that you would normally give in a primary care setting. The diet-only arm had several uh, targets. There, they had dietitians that uh, helped advise patients on a uh, diet. 
that was supposed to consist of 55 to 65% carbs, 10 to 15% 10 to 15% protein and 25 to 30% fat. And if you can if, if you kind of know these these proportions, it wasn't that aggressive, okay? Um, you know, the, the fat levels are pretty high and you know, you, there's a, there's a lot of things that we could do probably to make this stricter, but that's what they chose to use for their study. Uh, they were encouraged to eat more vegetables, drink less alcohol, and uh, less simple sugars. There was a calorie restriction for those who were overweight or obese, and that was to encourage them to lose weight. And then in terms of the actual counseling, there was individual counseling with, with physicians, as well as small group sessions that continued throughout the uh, active intervention. With the exercise-only arm, it's a little bit more complicated, but they basically were asked to increase their exercise level from whatever they were at baseline up by one or two levels or so. Uh, and so it wasn't specifically, um, there wasn't a goal for a certain amount of minutes or a certain level of intensity. The results of this study did show a decreased incidence of diabetes in the intervention arms, whether it was diet, exercise, or the combined uh, diet and exercise, you can see that the cumulative incidence of diabetes dropped from about 68% down to uh, in the, the 40s. And that correlated to a risk reduction, uh, especially for the combined arm, of about 42%. So there, those who had the lifestyle intervention, the full lifestyle intervention, had their risk of diabetes reduced by 42% after six years. That was the first study in 1997. The second study was the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study four years later, and they looked at 522 adults that were between the ages of 40 and 65, and they had to have a BMI greater than 25, in other words, they had to be overweight or obese, and they had to have impaired glucose tolerance. They were randomized to a control group and to a lifestyle intervention group, so they did not distinguish between diet and uh, exercise individually. The control group, of course, got the general uh, written and oral advice. And then the intervention groups had a little bit more of a, a rigorous or uh, some goals that were set for them that were individualized to, the, uh, to, the, to each patient. They were to reduce their weight by at least 5%. They were to decrease their fat intake by 30% and saturated fat by 10%, increase their fiber, and uh, the, the exercise was supposed to be moderate at uh, at least 30 minutes per day. So this was a little bit more of a goal-oriented goal intervention, and they were followed annually for four years to identify those that developed diabetes. What, what did they find here? Um, one thing I should mention before I go over these results is that the Daqing Chinese study, the, because they did not target weight loss as a goal, they actually did not achieve much weight. Uh, they didn't achieve any weight loss, actually. And so all the risk reduction that you see from that first study was due to, uh, was not related to weight loss. Does that make sense? Uh, so there was something else going on with the diet and the exercise, or even those individually, that was reducing their risk of diabetes. Now in this study, uh, we have now uh, some weight loss. And you can see after year two, while the control group lost uh, less than a kilogram, the intervention group lost about 3.5 kilograms. And after four years, the risk reduction was 58%, probably due to partially that a uh, more aggressive goal setting and also probably partly due to the fact that they had some weight loss associated with this program. 58, almost 60%. And finally, we're, we're getting to the diabetes pre uh, prevention program. This was one that was done in the United States it enrolled a lot more people, over 3,000 uh, subjects in this study. Uh, they were over 27 clinical centers. Their BMI had to be greater than 24, and in Asians greater than 22. Keep in mind that the BMI cutoff for Asians is lower. Did you know that? Usually we say 23, in this case they said 22, but uh, Asians have a different you know, phenotype, and so uh, BMI cutoff was lower for them. And of course, they had to have impaired glucose tolerance. They were randomized to either that standard lifestyle advice and placebo, standard lifestyle with metformin, and they could be on metformin up to uh, 850 milligrams twice a day, which is near maximal doses for metformin, and, uh, or they could be on intensive lifestyle intervention. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about what that was in a moment. The interesting thing about this particular study was that they had to stop it one year early because the preliminary results were so good. So they were, they were planning to do a four-year study. It ended up being closer to three years. And that's because after, well, we'll talk about this and we'll, we'll go over the, the results in a moment, but they had excellent results. So their goals for their lifestyle program was 7% weight loss, which is the most aggressive that we've seen so far. Although I would argue that we could be more aggressive if we really wanted to. Uh, but this, again, was the way that they set up their study. Their dietary fat goal was 25% of calories from fat. And they had a caloric intake goal between 1,200 to 1,800 uh, kilocalories per day based on their initial body weight. They were also asked to engage in at least 150 minutes of exercise a week. It had to be a brisk walking or or higher intensity. And the goal was to burn at least 700 kilocalories per week. The interesting thing about this program was that it was actually quite a bit more intense than the ones we've seen before. There was a 16-lesson curriculum, uh, and uh, there were a lot of group sessions involving exercise and, and diet, etc. So there's a lot of support, and there, was a, there were fairly aggressive uh, goals that were set. So the end result of this study, after only three years, it was stopped early because they found that the risk reduction in the intensive lifestyle group was 58%, the same as the Finnish diabetes prevention study. And that was only after three years. After that, they stopped the study. They put everyone in the, the uh, diabetes prevention program. Ethically, you'd need to do that, right? Because it was so effective. How could you keep the others from from that important knowledge. Also look at the metformin arm. You can see that metformin also is able to cause a risk reduction in incidence of diabetes over three years. And its risk reduction was 31%. But of course, you can see here that lifestyle intervention was twice as effective as metformin, metformin monotherapy. There have been other studies since <clears throat> looking at the lifestyle intervention in other populations as well. So I just want to bring this to your attention. For instance, there's been a study in, uh, of 458 Japanese males that had impaired glucose tolerance. They were randomized between control and lifestyle intervention. The lifestyle intervention for this one was, was really a BMI goal, so a weight loss target, and lifestyle instructions that were every three to four months. So not very intense on the lifestyle instructions but they were able to show a risk reduction of 67% over four years. So it's, it's very possible that lifestyle intervention may be especially effective in the Asian populations or certain Asian populations. Uh, in this other study here though, in, in Indian adults, they looked at 531 Indian adults with impaired glucose tolerance. They actually randomized them within a several groups including lifestyle intervention, metformin, or both. And they actually were fairly mild in their intervention. It was just lifestyle advice, okay? No group sessions, no major targets for weight loss, et cetera. But they still were able to show a risk reduction of 28% over just three years. And you have to remember that in, the, uh, the, in this Indian population, we're talking about South Asia, they have a high genetic pre uh, predisposition to insulin resistance. So, there were some genetic components uh, at play here, too, but it still was an effective way to reduce the incidence of diabetes. Now, each of these major studies that we just talked about had follow-up studies as well. So even after each of these studies was done, Daching study was six years, Finnish uh, diabetes prevention study was four years, and then the, the DPP was three years, even after the participants finished that study, that active intervention, they, and, and stopped having that, that, those follow-up sessions and all the active intervention, they followed up with those people a certain amount of time later. And so you can see at the Dodging study, they actually followed up 20 years after the initial study. And they found that, believe it or not, the risk reduction remained the same 20 years later. 42% 
originally and still had a 43% risk reduction after 20 years. Obviously, that's a, a kind of a special population. There are probably some reasons to explain that, but you can see that it was sustained. The Finnish diabetes prevention study originally showed a risk reduction of 58%. After four years, the risk reduction still was about 43%, and after 13 years, 38%. So there was some, uh, you know, you, you can imagine that some of the people maybe weren't quite as adherent to those lifestyle recommendations over the course of those years, but they still had a residual benefit. And for the diabetes prevention program here in the United States, Remember, it had the 58% risk reduction in the beginning. After 10 years, that was 34%, and in 15 years, that was 27%. That's the latest data that we have. So you can look at this two ways. You can look at this and say, well, adherence probably trailed off, and actually the Finnish diabetes prevention study actually showed that part of the reason why there was sustained risk reduction was related to how ad adherent the participants were to lifestyle advice after they finished the study. So we definitely can say that uh, it, the adherence contributes to the risk reduction uh, even 10, 20 years down the road. But, uh, but you can also see here that there is a, a, an increased, a sustained risk reduction. And that's really what I wanted to pull out of these, these studies, is that lifestyle intervention can significantly reduce the onset of diabetes somewhere between 30 and 70%. That may depend on lots of factors, uh, genetic predisposition of the population, the adherence, how structured your program is, the weight loss goals that you have, all those things may play a factor, but somewhere between 30 to 70% within three to six years uh, of active intervention. And that the risk reduction of that intervention can last for up to 20 years. We don't have data beyond that. It might, might be interesting to see a 30-year follow-up or a 40-year follow-up, especially for the Da Ching study. So how does this lifestyle intervention work? In order to understand how it works, we need to understand what causes diabetes and what causes diabetes to progress. And this is a, a, an expanding area of research. There's a lot of work going on into it. There's a lot that we still don't understand about about diabetes and the underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms, but uh, we're going to cover a few things in, uh, that we do know and how lifestyle may be contributing to that. So first of all, let's just review the natural course of diabetes. Most of you will, will be familiar with this. This is a chart here, uh, basically a timeline from a normal individual who has normal glucose tolerance to someone who has impaired glucose tolerance, or what we call pre-diabetes, all the way down here to the overt diabetes. Uh, and so we can see here that early on, even when we are considered normal, that insulin resistance begins to creep up. And that normally correlates with an increase in weight. And, uh, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. As the insulin resistance increases, the beta cells in the pancreas compensate by increasing their level of insulin production. And so for a while, you can see here, insulin production, production also uh, increases to keep up with the insulin resistance. But those beta cells can only produce, and I should really say overproduce, insulin for so long before they begin to fail. And it's when you have beta cell failure here that insulin production begins to trail off, and without insulin being produced, the glucose level begins to go up, and that's where you get the hyperglycemia. Once you hit a certain threshold of hyperglycemia, we call that type 2 diabetes. All right, so we're all familiar with this. So let's talk, so there are many, many reasons for type 2 diabetes progression, okay? Uh, we, we now know of, of defects in, in the brain, uh, in the adipose tissue, in uh, the kidneys, in the gut, all over the body. It, it seems like there are all these different mechanisms in play. But the two main ones that we just talked about were the two core defects of diabetes are insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction, okay? 
So those are the two that we're going to focus on today. So let's first talk about insulin resistance. And there are a lot of causes of insulin resistance, but I've, I've taken some of the main ones and I've just categorized them into two groups. The first one would be non-lifestyle related. We know that as, as we uh, move in forward in age, the aging process naturally leads to more insulin resistance. We know that ethnicity, we talked about some of those ethnicities that have a higher rate of insulin resistance inherently. Uh, there are also diseases. Uh, I tend to think of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, but there are different diseases that can have uh, higher rates of insulin resistance. Medications, steroids would be a good example of that, can cause insulin resistance, but there are many of them. Uh, and of course, infection. We know that uh, during acute infections, the body becomes more insulin resistant, and that's just a natural uh, phenomenon. But there are also lifestyle-related causes of insulin resistance. The main one that we all think about is obesity, and that's probably because obesity is one of the main players in this. Uh, we know that as the obesity epidemic has grown, so has the diabetes epi epidemic. But there are other things too. The uh, physical inactivity has been related to insulin resistance. Sleep apnea also has been shown to cause insulin resistance, as well as smoking. But the one that I really want to focus on today is this one called chronic low-grade inflammation. And this has the potential to bring together a lot of those mechanisms that we just talked about into kind of a cohesive picture. We know that chronic low-grade inflammation is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, right? That's been pretty well proven. We, we, t we use uh, CRP levels, et cetera, to, to, um, uh, to evaluate risk for cardiovascular disease. Well, that is probably also the case for other chronic disease diseases, including diabetes. And this is kind of how, how it works, or how we think it may, it may play together, okay? So, so bear with me as we walk through this a little bit. It's, um, there are no molecular signaling pathways in this, uh, I, uh, and so that's why I put it up here. So go ahead and look up here at, first of all, the lifestyle factors. So we're looking at a lot of different lifestyle factors. We just talked about some of them. But obviously, the things that we're putting into our body, our diet, the amount of fiber we're eating, physical activity or inactivity, and psychosocial factors, right? You know, we talked about you know, there's stress, sleep, all these other things that go into it. Those different components can affect levels of various uh, mediators in a body. Of course, if we're talking about diet, we're going to talk about things like glucose, fatty acids. Fatty acids would be uh, what we call lipotoxicity. Glucose, we would call glucotoxicity. And a bunch of other different different uh, concentrations of different things in our bloodstream, okay, uh, including inflammatory mediators we're going to talk about. These, all, all these things can induce what we call pro-inflammatory responses in all parts of the body, and that's a systemic response, but it's a low-grade response, okay? If you have a, a, an acute infection, maybe um, some pneumonia or uh, a major skin infection or something, yes, your inflammation will go sky high. But once that uh, it heals, it should come back down to normal. But this is a chronic, low-grade type of, of response. And notice over here that there's also, at the same time, a, an inflammatory response going on in the fat tissue itself. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a second. Together, oops, sorry, went the wrong way here. Together, these, uh, a localized and a systemic inflammatory response can cause this sustained, this chronic low-grade uh, inflammation. The problem with low-grade inflammation is that it uh, can do two things. Number one, it can inhibit beta cell function and decrease insulin secretion. It can also, also um, uh, trigger apoptosis in those beta cells, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment because... That's very important. That's a direct effect. Then it also can cause basically uh, insulin resistance and other metabolic disturbances, which indirectly are also going to contribute, as we saw before, in beta cell failure. Does that make sense? So basically what we have here is lifestyle causing a low-grade chronic inflammatory response in the body that will either directly um, 
affect your beta cells in your pancreas, and it will cause insulin resistance, which again affects your beta cells because it increases the load on them. All right, so what are some of the lifestyle factors that contribute to inflammation? Well, there are many, uh, but uh, I've summarized some of them here. We know that saturated fat can actually activate inflammatory pathways in multiple organs. Uh, sometimes it's done through what we call the um, TLR system, a set of receptors that uh, saturated fat, especially palmitate, can activate. And those receptors are everywhere in the body, including the adipose tissue, liver, muscle, brain, and even those pancreatic islet cells have these receptors and can be affected by this um, high saturated fat. We also know that the gut microbiome, this is the, the gut flora that you have in your intestines, is altered in, in obesity, and it also triggers an inflammatory response. In fact, you also have those TLR receptors in your gut. We also know that hyperglycemia acutely, uh, and as well from a more epidemiologic standpoint, a diet in high in refined carbohydrates will increase your pro-inflammatory markers and decrease your anti-inflammatory markers. Uh, there's been some research done in sleep deprivation, both acute and chronic, and that also is pro-inflammatory. And finally, uh, we talked about those, those uh, localized effects in the, in the fat tissue. Adipocyte hypertrophy, which occurs when we have too many calories, right? The, the, adip, the, uh, the fat cells actually hypertrophy and they become, some of them will become hypoxic because they outstrip their blood supply. And if, if they become hypoxic, they will necrose and die. When they do that, that attracts macrophages and immune cells to clean up that, and those immune cells then become activated to produce cytokines and inflammatory uh, markers, and then that recruits more macrophages and immune cells, and you get this vicious cycle of uh, of what they call adipocytis, or a low-grade inflammation of the adipose tissue. So how does inflammation cause diabetes? Well, first of all, if any of this in, uh, inflammation happens in either the adipose tissue, liver, or skeletal muscle, you're going to have insulin resistance, all right? But also, adipose tissue, when inflamed, releases free fatty acids. And so when those free fatty acids are circulating in the blood, they cause insulin resistance. In fact, research that I did in, uh, when I was in fellowship, we would infuse normal patients, like, like you and I, with free fatty acids, you know, intralipid. And within four hours, uh, people are completely in insulin resistant, just like a diabetic would be just based on a few hours of increased levels of free fatty acids. So this is a very powerful effect. And also remember that these free fatty acids have a, have a lipo, they're lipotoxic, and they have a direct effect on beta cells. Now, in the hypothalamus, that also can become inflamed. And the hypothalamus is where our appetite and, and our caloric intake is controlled. And so those with inflammation in the hypothalamus are going to be prone to obesity. They will have central leptin and insulin resistance, et cetera. Uh, and uh, finally, inflammation can actually directly affect the pancreatic beta cells and decrease their insulin secretion. So there you go. Inflammation can affect all the different, a lot of the different mechanisms that underlie diabetes. Now, if lifestyle caused the problem, can lifestyle reverse the problem or improve the problem? And there is evidence to that, uh, to that regard. So let's talk about exercise first. In the large population studies, these are observational studies, uh, we see an inverse association between inflammation and inflammatory markers and physical activity. So the more physically active, the less inflammation and vice versa. And that goes for both acute exercise and regular exercise. So in acute exercise, we actually have found that, that there's an anti-inflammatory effect of acute exercise. So after even one, one session of exercise, you will have a decrease in your anti-inflammatory markers. And that's through primarily the secretion of uh, interleukin-6. 
So uh, IL-6 has multiple roles, but in this case, it's actually anti-inflammatory. And they also, there's also an immunosuppressive effect on certain cytokine-producing immune cells, primarily uh, monocytes. The, remember those ones that are attracted to the, to the, uh, the fat tissue, and they start that cycle of, of inflammation. Now, with regular exercise, there's been some interesting findings there. Regular exercise can decrease inflammation in the body, but it has to be moderate to vigorous intensity. That means greater than 70% of your max aerobic capacity. If it's mild, which is typically the slow walking, which if that's all that your patient can do, or, then you, got, you have to start somewhere, don't you? But just realize that it has to be moderate to vigorous in order to impact inflammation, all right? And uh, there has been some studies also in this what's called high-intensity intermittent training. Have you heard of it before? Uh, and so uh, what's called HIT, if you do these very intense, like greater than 90% of your max aerobic capacity for short amounts of time with breaks in between, you actually can get very, uh, very uh, strong decreases in your, in, in your inflammation. And they found that even after two weeks of this high-intensity intermittent training, that you can have uh, vastly reduced levels of inflammation. When it comes to diet, uh, there's a lot uh, that we could talk about here. I'll just mention a couple things. Uh, most of you are familiar with the Mediterranean diet, and that's just uh, you know, more plant-based, uh, um, healthier oils, etc., cetera, um, low red meat, etc. diet. That has been associated with decreased inflammatory markers in the metabolic syndrome. And uh, we also know that uh, a diet that's low in refined carbohydrates actually decreases CRP levels, which is uh, one of the inflammatory markers. And uh, keep in mind that monopolyunsaturated fatty acids can decrease post-meal inflammatory responses as well. So there are, there's a bunch more uh, information, but this is just what I wanted to, to share with you today about how diet also can impact inflammation. So we've talked about insulin resistance, all right? But how about those beta cells? Because I'll be honest with you, the real, the real uh, predictor or the real bottom line for diabetes is that you will not have diabetes unless you have beta cell failure because that's what diabetes is. It's a, it's a dis dysfunction of the pancreas. The insulin resistance that we talked about is, is just a it's just causing those beta cells to fail. So if we can, if we can target those beta cells and preserve those, those beta cells, we will preserve, we will prevent diabetes. Does that make sense? So this is a, a chart here looking at beta cell function. And uh, this here is probably the gold standard for beta, looking at beta cell function. It takes into account uh, not only what the glucose level is at the time it is measured, but it also takes into account the insulin resistance of that individual at that point in time. And you can see here that as we progress from normal or normal glucose tolerance to IGT, impaired glucose tolerance, to type 2 diabetes, we have a, slow, a, a steady decline in beta cell function. But there's a couple things that I want to point out here. First of all, the blue is considered normal glucose tolerance. But by the time, that, even if your normal glucose tolerance here at the very edge of almost becoming uh, impaired glucose tolerance, notice that you've already lost 50% of your beta cell function before you're even known to have prediabetes, all right? And that's primarily related probably to the insulin resistance and the obesity and the inflammation that's going on before before you cross that threshold that we all know for, in, um, for prediabetes. Now, by the time that you get to the end of the uh, prediabetes, you have lost approximately 80% of your beta cell function. All right? We have a question over here. That's, that's a good question. Uh, it depends on the individual. And so remember, this is function. It's not necessarily beta cell loss itself. So some of this definitely is, is beta cell loss. In fact, 
The studies show that by the time you get to this point, you probably lost about 50% of your beta cell mass. Okay, so that's the actual beta cells. But some of this is probably due, especially during the impaired glucose tolerance, to the hyperglycemia causing glucotoxicity and potentially the lipotoxicity that we're talking about with the increased fat, free fatty acids. They may also be, be preventing those beta cells from fully uh, producing, secreting as much insulin as they could. So in the case of someone who's caught early, there's a much greater chance, first of all, that they'll have less beta cell loss. And if they are caught, uh, if we reverse some of that lipotoxicity, some of that glucotoxicity, there's a much greater chance, if we do that early, that they could recover a lot, some of that function back. And, and we've all seen patients that, that have done this. Typically, it's the ones that have had diabetes less, or they may have some, some genetic, um, um, different genetic risk profiles. But uh, there are people in these categories who can, who can easily reverse. But we need to realize that the longer we go along this curve, the harder it's going to be to completely reverse. Why is that? Because once you lose a beta cell completely, like an apoptosis, cell death, it's gone. You can't get it back. Science knows of no way currently to regenerate a beta cell short of islet cell transplant. So once you lose that beta cell, I'm not talking about the ones that are, that are still alive and and if, you, if we do CPR on them, they can come back to life and, and, uh, and that's, we can reverse their diabetes there. I'm talking about the ones that have died. Once we lose them, they're gone, okay? This is a, the, a powerful argument for early, early intervention. In fact, intervention should be somewhere in this range, in my opinion, because we want to save those beta cells even then. So we need lifestyle intervention and we need it early. Does that make sense? All right. Let's move to the last part of our talk, and that is there's a dilemma, isn't there? How do we keep these lifestyle changes going? And I, I have to admit, I don't feel like I know all the answers to this. I think there are a lot of great minds, uh, some of them even in this room, who have been tackling this, and, uh, and I appreciate that. I will tell you that uh, when I was in uh, fellowship uh, in, this, in the University of Texas San Antonio, one of the premier diabetes research groups is located there. They do a ton of, of research, and uh, as I spent time with them, doing research along with them, one thing was very clear as we, as we worked together, as we talked together about diabetes, and that was that everyone knows that lifestyle intervention is, is significantly powerful to reduce diabetes incidence. No one questions that. What people do question is how, how adherent people are going to be to those lifestyle changes. And, and that is actually what led the research group that, I'm a, that I was a part of to, uh, to actually recommend uh, pharmacologic therapy. It's called triple therapy. To, to find some way to, get people, to treat people early and to preserve those beta cells. But we all know that better than those pharmacologic agents is these lifestyle changes if we can get people to continue to make those healthy lifestyle choices over time in the long term. So uh, one more thing before I go into some of the, um, the programs. The thing that I probably appreciate the most was what uh, our AMEN president, Todd Guthrie, what he said last night, right? And that is that in order for people to make long-term changes in their life, there has to be a change in what? Our identity, right? We have, to, we have to be transformed at a different level to gain access to a power that can help us sustain change. And I think ultimately that's where we as Adventists have a profound opportunity. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Let me first just quickly go over uh, what some of the studies have shown, or what they did in some of these trials. We talked a little bit about these landmark trials. And uh, the Daching study had individualized physician counseling in small group sessions. They met once a week for a month, then once monthly for three months, and finally every three months for the rest of their intervention. The Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study 
had face-to-face -face encounters, but it was with a nutritionist, so they involved a multidisciplinary team. And uh, they were meeting about every three months uh, after some initial um, like seven face-to-face -face encounters in the first year. They also had voluntary supervised exercise sessions at a gym. The diabetes prevention program was the most structured and the most aggressive. And they had a 16-lesson curriculum, covered diet, exercise, behavior modification. It was done one-on-one -on -one for uh, six months, and then they had monthly group sessions for reinforcement. When you look at the diabetes prevention program, which has probably been the most successful and the most widely copied uh, program out there, this is actually the, these are the actual um, uh, components that they felt summarized their program uh, when they published it. And so let's just go over them briefly. Goal-based intervention. Remember, they had weight loss goals and other goals. Uh, lifestyle coaches. They did use lifestyle coaching. Frequent contact and structured curriculum. Supervised physical activity. Flexibility, including motivational campaigns and restarts. So they gave the opportunity for patients who kind of fell off the wagon to get back into their intensive weight loss program uh, and restart. There was individualization, ethnic sensitivity, really trying to personalize it to the patient. And they also had a network for training the staff and getting feedback, which was important to them. So the problem with this DPP program was that it was so aggressive, it was difficult for a lot of uh, you know, primary care offices or even community-based programs to implement, although some have. And there have been modifications of it. So other modalities have been looked at, too. And I don't really, we don't really have time to go through a lot of these. But I'll just mention a few things. First of all, there are there other uh, face-to-face type uh, modalities. Some of the popular classes from the diabetes prevention program were resistance training, vegetarian cooking, and those restart programs. So just keep that in mind. Um, shared medical appointments are another way to, to address uh, a group setting for lifestyle intervention. An interesting component is this, what's this called mobile health. And this is basically using mobile phones and mobile technology to, uh, for health intervention. And uh, one of them, of course, is phone coaching. And the idea behind all of this is that a lot of people have cell phones. And even, even dumb phones can, can do texting, right? <laughs> so, so everyone has a phone nowadays, pretty much. And uh, it, you don't have to all meet in one place. You can call people at different times of the day. It depends on their schedule. And of course, finally, it doesn't cost much. And that was, that's the big issue with implementing uh, large-scale and resource-intensive programs. So phone coaching has been found to be, to be helpful. Texting, actually, there have been a bunch of studies on texting. OK, yep, uh, on texting. And uh, it works really well, at least in some of the studies I saw, in women. They would, pair these, they would have these women uh, texting. Uh, called Texting Buddies, and they would exchange texts all the time, like 120 or so texts uh, a week or something like that. They were texting back and forth and supporting one another. So texting can work. Uh, what I'll just say about mobile health is that the general gist of the research is showing that it's helpful, but it doesn't take the place of face-to-face. -face. Uh, internet, websites, portals, not very helpful. Social media, we're just getting into that. But there are a lot of HIPAA issues and different privacy issues that go along with social media. Uh, but the last thing I want to just talk about as we close here is uh, spiritual support. Um, I don't have time to really talk about uh, some of the, there are Christian diabetes programs that are being implemented in churches. But what we, what we, really, what we really should be talking about now is what can we as Adventists do? This. This healthcare crisis in diabetes, it's huge. It's one of the, the crises of our generation. And uh, Adventists have known the, the answer to this crisis since before there was a crisis. For 100 years, we've ha we have known the health message that we have. And it's perfectly situated for the times that we're living in. In reality, Adventists should have been doing the diabetes prevention program. We should have been on the leading edge doing those major landmark studies. We could have done it, and we should have done it. They've been done. The evidence is out there. I'm glad it's out there. Uh, 
there are a lot of researchers doing research on insulin resistance and inflammation and all these beta cell things. That will continue to be done. Where can Adventists contribute the most? I would say the biggest question mark right now in, in diabetes prevention and treatment is how to sustain lifestyle change. No one has an answer. And Adventists, we have the answer in our health message and the answer in how we can su sustain that. And that's through a transformed life that taps into the power of God to make changes that are lasting. And so that's really what I want to encourage us today. The, studies are, the, the landmark studies are done. The research is going on. But we need people, and there are some here today who are doing it now. We need more. We need more people to step up and say, we want to innovate. We want to be on the leading edge. We want to publish these studies and show the world how we can uh, have a program that's faith-based, that taps into some things other than meditation or other types of, of Eastern type um, spiritualities to really show that this can be done and that this can be done through the power of Christ and we can use it as a model to, to make a difference in this diabetes epidemic. So keep that in mind. If there's anyone here who's interested in diabetes, come talk to me later. I'd love to, to network together. But let's pray that we can take advantage of this opportunity that God has given us and that we can apply what we know as Adventists in a special way to, to help medical missionary work to be that final push to reach others, those that need it most. Let's end with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, if you have any questions, you can stay afterward and ask them. All right. Dear, dear Father in heaven, thank you for giving us knowledge, special knowledge, uh, at, for always giving us special knowledge at critical times in the Earth's history. And now as we live in the most critical time of Earth's history, we want to play a role, the role that you have set aside for medical missionary work, for lifestyle medicine, to show the world that not only is the health message true, but that you have the power to change people's lives forever. Help us to be innovators through your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.